Okay. Are you ready? Yep. I'm Amy Tang Zhao, a Chinese living in America. You want me to call you Amy, or do you want me to call you Tianyi? And I'm Meg, an American who is about to marry into a Chinese family. It allows people to have an eye into who we are as people and how we find our own identity in the world. We're the hosts of The Spark, a podcast that explores what it means to traverse between cultures and shares stories that intersect Chinese and American culture to interrupt cultural barriers and create connections. Hey, everybody. We're thrilled to be introducing today's guest. She is a social scientist, storyteller, and number one New York Times bestselling author. Her book, Untrue, was described as revolutionary by The Atlantic and an indispensable work of popular psychology and sociology in a starred Kirkus review, where it also won the best nonfiction designation. She co-hosts the True Sex and Wild Love podcast and hosts a popular weekly IG Live Wineless Wednesday for the sober and sober curious who want up-to-date info on sex, sexual science, and sexual health. Her work on women, sex, and relationships has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy, Psychology Today, Refinery29, and The Hollywood Reporter, among others. Without further ado, we'd like to welcome Dr. Wednesday Martin to the Spark Podcast. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Martin. <laughs> Hello to you both. It's really nice to be here with you. Please call me Wednesday. <laughs> Thank you. It's nice to have you on. Thank yeah. you so much for coming on the Spark. We have been long awaiting um, talking with you, and we know our audience is really, um, they don't know about this episode yet, but they will when they listen. I know that they're very excited to um, to hear from you. Yeah, I reached out to you a while ago, and thank you so much again for for agreeing on and being interviewed by us. Uh, the reason why I thought about reaching out to you is because your book, The Primates of Park Avenue, I read it a while ago, a couple of years ago, and I knew that the phenomenon of tiger mom, the mommy craze, have always been existing, but it's been elevating um, in the place where I'm from, which is China. And in a very fast developing country, people are especially women feel this pressure coming from all over the place to be not only a perfect individual, but also a perfect mom. Mm. So I think that it is a great opportunity uh, for us to put you in one of the highlights of the Mother's Day series. And what is also very interesting was because last year there was this hit TV show came on Chinese TV. It's called uh, Nothing But 30. For those who knew in Chinese, it's called Century. This show was about a middle class portrayed a middle upper middle class woman who wanted to fit in quote unquote fit in to a upper class female uh, social circle. <laughs> The reason why she wanted to do it is because she wanted to grab a school spot for her kids and also of to, course. I know, right? And to grab a school spot for her kids and also just to have a social life to establish herself in this social status. And then um, she went to this tea party sort of uh, gathering and then she was the only one whose purse was not a Birkin. Oh, and she got, <laughs> <laughs> what <Already>. a terrible, <laughs> terrible fate. Yeah, she just didn't know. And then she went and they took a photo together. And not only she was standing on the side, most importantly, she got cut off 
when she saw other people posting that photo that they took together, she saw on the phone, she was like, okay, so I was the one who got cut off from the, from the photo. And then she was madly wanted to pursue this, um, Hermes Birkenback. And that reminded me of your book again. And also that specific scene ignited a lot of debates and a lot of discussions in China about your book, which had a dedicated chapter about the Hermes Birkenback. About the Birkenback, right. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, those were very kind introductions. And I just wanted to say that it's my um, honor and pleasure to be on the podcast with you. I love uh, the your podcast um, and what you've done um, and how you um, reach out to Chinese and Asian American listeners and um so it's really wonderful for me, and uh, I always love to connect uh, with my readers, be they in mainland China or Hong Kong or the U.S. or wherever they are. Primates of Park Avenue has been translated into many languages, but one of the things that always strikes me is that worldwide there are many contexts or ecologies um, whether they are big cities or smaller cities, um, but there are many ecologies where people are surprised uh, that motherhood is competitive, um, that mothers form dominance hierarchies, uh, and that they have um, almost fetish objects or, um, you know, social signifiers, for example, like the Birkin bag, uh, that they use to recognize each other, um, to hone their identity and to assert, um, a kind of clannish group identity with another group of mothers. Mm -hmm. So I knew as an anthropologist, when I started writing Primates of Park Avenue, uh, I suspected that it would resonate wherever motherhood was a competitive undertaking. But I thought at the time that I was living in the place and studying the habits of the most competitive mothers in the world. Uh, And then the book hit a nerve in China. And I began to understand, uh, you know, sometimes from uh, colleagues who were sociologists and anthropologists in China, um, but sometimes just from people who got in touch with me, uh, that it really was speaking to women in China who were responsible, right, for the futures of their children in this burgeoning economy uh, where there were very few rules and everything was about economic gain and not just capital, but cultural capital. And mothers were responsible and are responsible for the cultural capital of their children, which is very analogous um, to what was going on and and continues to go on uh, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Um, so I, I'm just honored to be able to, um, see it unfolding in real time and connect uh, with your listeners. Thank you for that. No, definitely. Because, you know, in today's China, it's not only a privilege to be a mom, it's, it's more so a privilege to be a mom without a career. And that's, almost like you're rich enough to be a housewife, um, to be an educated, like you said, overeducated, not no working experience mothers, right? 
And however, this privilege also comes along with caveats, such as no contact with the outside world, and people are living in this small segregated gated community.、Mm. And also, most importantly, the pressure of climbing the ladders. And these behaviors take a whole new meaning as their children compromise the、mm. rungs of on the ladder,、mm-hmm. and their well-being and successes equate to the mothers. Because、mm-hmm. more so, people think that if my kids are not successful enough, it means that I'm not successful.、Mm-hmm. And I think my first question would be: In your experience navigating through the complexities of parenting in the Park Avenue, way back, what does this do to the mother, and what does it do to the child? Mm. It sounds、oh, like、yeah. a toxic environment. <laughs> That's a great question. I want to just back up a little bit and,、yeah. and make a point first, which might help us with context.、Definitely. Which is back to this topic of the Birkin bag, right? A lot of people in fields like sociology and anthropology have a horror of、um, what the anthropologist Laura Nader called studying up. A lot of anthropology and sociology is based on. Academic social scientists studying poor people, right? Poor people don't have a lot of defenses.、Um, historically, in many、uh, metropoles around the world,、uh, poor people have been the easiest people to study because they don't, they can't push back, right? And then social scientists have、uh, perpetrated terrible wrongs、um, on the poor people that they studied,、uh, whether you know, in the form of of judgment. Um, whether、uh, you know, in the form of trying to implement reforms that really、uh, restrict people's freedoms,、um, but basically, social scientists love studying poor people. I mean, it's so easy, right? They can't really object. It's、yeah. harder to study rich people,、yeah. and then there's this idea:、uh, rich people have all kinds of ways of preventing you from studying them. That's true.、Uh, yeah. So the anthropologist Laura Nader discovered this in the '70s. She was teaching anthropology in the University of California system, and some of her students wanted to study what we would now call an investment bank,、mm-hmm. basically the equivalent of, say, Goldman Sachs. And her anthropology student said, "We'd like to go in and." We'd like to study the cultural practices. What's going on there?、Um, you know, what what is the culture of, say, this thing that was analogous to to Goldman Sachs? It's a very prestigious、um, investment banking、uh, fund. And so, Laura Nader thought it was a great idea. Let's let's study、uh, finance culture and、uh, approached the fund. And the people said, "Absolutely no way!" Now, these were some of the wealthiest people in the state of California. They、uh, made lots of money, but more importantly, they had a lot of cultural capital.、Mm-hmm. Right? They funded the opera. They sat on the boards of. Art museums.、Um, they sat on the boards of hospitals, and so it wasn't just that they had a lot of capital; they had a lot of cultural capital, and they simply were able to keep social scientists at bay,、mm-hmm. and no one could study them. And because no one could study them, they continued to have the keys to the kingdom. Right? Nobody right. could crack their cultural codes. Nobody knew their cultural logic, and this is one of the ways that elites remain elites. So、um, I was kind of now now within the fields of anthropology and social science. 
Um, there, there's also there's another difficulty um, that anthropologists who want to study elites would encounter. Not just that elites uh, are resistant to being studied and have the means, unlike poor people, to keep you away. Yeah. That's just one level of the problem. Um, the second level of the problem that was is that within the academy, um, many social scientists look down on this kind of work. Um, mm. You know, it's considered shallow. Um, you know, it's more urgent, for example, to study, say, um, um, poverty, uh, uh, impoverished mothers in favelas in Brazil. And I agree, that's extremely urgent. We have to do that. But see, anthropology and social science aren't making a real contribution until we're both studying up and, uh, you know, studying uh, sideways and mm-hmm. studying down, if you will. Um, it's time for rich people and elites, cultural elites and financial elites to be put under the microscope yeah. because we need to understand how do they get their privilege? How do they consolidate their privilege? What's the cultural logic behind the decisions that they're making? How are they able to yeah. just lock down cultural capital? And, um, you know, pe- people have to, in my view, it's time for social science to really fund studying up. Um, it's very expensive for, for primates of park Avenue. Uh, you know, if I wanted to study impoverished mothers, they would not really be able to say no to me. And I could just go into those contexts and that's very important. And I'm glad that anthropologists do it. Studying up on the other hand, um, really, um, requires, uh, it's, it's resource. Not only do elites not want to be studied, but it's resource and time intensive. Yeah. So you have to get these people to trust you, but how do you get them to trust you? You yeah. have to apply to the schools. You have to invest in the outfits. You have to buy tickets to the galas uh, and the luncheons. And, um, it's really expensive to study up. So I just wanted to start with that point about mm-hmm. how studying elites is very important. And I hope that social scientists, scientists and anthropologists uh, will commit to it and stop back to the Birkin bag. I knew that the Birkin bag was an important signifier with the, that told a whole story about the culture. Um, but people, it's easier for people to just say, Oh, women are shallow and they want expensive bags. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but, but no, there, there is a deep cultural logic at work in the behavior of, of mothers. And, um, I think it's worthy of study. So, um, we need social science to stop poo-pooing the lives of women um, and, and poo-pooing the project of studying rich people. Uh, we'll never have any kind of equality until we really understand the cultural systems and practices of elites. So that is the larger context. Now to this question about um, the privilege of being a mother who stays at home with your child. Um I can and and the impact that intensive motherhood has um, on mothers and children. Um, the feminist sociologist Sharon Hayes coined the term intensive motherhood because she studied elites and she was noticing that among uh, highly educated, wealthier people in the industrialized West, especially in the United States, the wealthier and more educated people were, the more likely it was that they harbored this belief 
that motherhood should be basically a responsibility all on the mother versus instead of like on the mother and her sister and her friends and a village. Right. Right. And they were also more likely the wealthier uh, and more highly educated they were. They were also likely to harbor the belief uh, that a mother should do it all on her own, uh, maybe with a nanny and that motherhood should be costly. It should be economically costly. It should be uh, socially costly. It should be emotionally costly. It should be difficult. And I like to give the example often of like in our mother's generation, perhaps they would have given us some Lego and let us sit on the floor. But intensive motherhood dictates that the mother, not the father, sit down on the floor with the toddler or the young child and do Lego with that child to give the child the most enriched educational Lego experience possible. That's a lot of responsibility. And uh, when you add in Legos every day and going to the speech pathologist. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a very, uh, all the other things that moms are doing, taking their children to enrichment classes, supervising staff, maybe for the betterment of their children, um, running around, getting their children here and there for their children's enrichment. And then in their everyday interactions with their children, being obliged to enrich their children's lives on virtually every measure. That's exhausting. Um, And it also creates anxiety. And we know there are ample data uh, that show that, for example, uh, we have data from the World Trade Center attacks uh, on 9-11 in in my town in New York City. Uh, We have data, interesting, important studies about the impact uh, of the stress of 9-11 on both maternal health and fetal health, right? And there was a higher incidence, for example, of uh, factors like lower birth rate, uh, which is a risk factor uh, for a lot of other poor outcomes. And um, so we have plenty of data that in utero, uh, the fetus can be impacted uh, by stress that the mother feels. And there are decades of research on that. Um, but, you know, we also have research on how um, parental stress impacts children, right? Mm-hmm. Not just fetuses, but also children. And uh, what I observed just anecdotally intersected with the data that I reviewed, uh, which which suggested that the higher the rates of parental anxiety, the higher the rates of child anxiety, and that that could impede uh, the child's ability to form meaningful, fun social relationships with friends. It could impact the uh, child's eating habits, the child's sleeping habits, um, and and other things that are really important for child development. Um, so. That is important information that when we subject women to this ideology of intensive motherhood, we're not just stressing mothers, we're stressing children. Now, interestingly enough, in my country, oh, people were already plenty concerned about children. You know, they were concerned about the impact and it's worthy concern uh, of of what they might call neurotic mothering uh, Mm -hmm. on children. But they weren't paying very much attention to the women. Right. The women were just these vessels for children and and they were to blame. And who cares yeah. about their well-being? 
And uh, I'm glad that there are mothers who do care about the well-being of mothers across all, um, you know, economic positions. Um, but yes, these women became incredibly stressed and anxious, and it's very easy to make fun of them. And, um, you know, parts of my book are very funny because being a rich mom on the Upper East Side is in some ways super funny, just like being a really rich mom in China and the things you're worrying about and trying to get a Birkin bag and trying to get a good spot and trying to be perfect and going to exercise classes and like, killing somebody so that you get the best spot in the ballet bar class. Um, <laughs> those things are hilarious, but the very serious topic of how intensive motherhood as an ideology creates stress on mothers who are hypocritically expected to be uh, the primary parents. We let fathers right. off the hook 100% and Absolutely. the impact on children that that is serious business. And so I never want us to blame mothers for what looks like crazy behaviors. I always want to look at the undergirding, the infrastructure of, quote, crazy, unquote, maternal behavior. Mm-hmm. And the infrastructure or undergirding is often a radical imbalance of power between men and women where men are free to go off into the world, make the laws, make the money. And women think they're choosing to stay at home, but do they really, is that really a choice or is that a false choice? Oh, that's huge. Yeah. And in the United States, you know, thankfully we have feminist social scientists who introduced this idea of the false choice. The number of women that I interviewed who told me stories like, well, I, um, I went to, um, after when I was pregnant, I went to my boss and I said, I really want to keep my job. Um, can I come back part-time after, uh, no, it's a full-time position. Well, could I do flex time? Could I work part-time from home? And mm, no, uh, well, could I, uh, I don't know. Could we come up with some kind of arrangement? No. And then the woman would after that say to me, so I chose to stay home. Hmm. And I would look at her and say, and I would say, what do you mean you chose to stay home? Here's what a choice is. Here's a choice. You're pregnant and you go to your boss or you have the baby and you go to your boss and the boss says, here's some options for you. One option is, would you like to stay home and work either flex time, full time or part time? Mm. Or after we give you, uh, your, um, you know, maternal leave of absence or parental leave of absence, because sometimes fathers avail themselves of it increasingly, thank goodness, after your leave of absence, would you like to come back? Um, We have a nursery here and uh, the baby can be here and you can nurse the baby whenever you need, if that's something that you do or see the baby and work here full time. Um, Do you have a preference? That's called a choice. Telling a woman come back full time or your job is gone or telling a woman, well, you can go on the mommy track. You can be Mm -hmm. an associate in the law firm forever rather than a partner. But if you're going to have kids, "Mm, yeah, you're going to have to go part time or mommy track. That's not a choice. No, not a choice at all. Amen. Women have women. The biggest lie that women in the United States have heard, and I'm not sure if it's true in China, is this this lie that they're staying home, that it's a matter of choice and that it's their choice. It's called a false choice. And I hope uh, and that false choice 
and how disingenuously it's framed as a choice speaks to yet another radical power imbalance uh, mm-hmm. between men and women uh, in the U.S. and China. Mm-hmm. That's huge. And women, women are too tired to riot. Right. Even right. the rich ones. Even the rich ones. They're too yeah. tired to say this, this will not stand. Uh, and they feel too shamed because the idea, the ideology of intensive motherhood is extremely efficacious. It exhausts mm-hmm. women and then it shames them if they're not able, uh, yeah. you know, to pull it off. So, um, that's one of the reasons I really wanted to call primates of Park Avenue, patriarchy on Park Avenue. Um, oh, but, <laughs> but, uh, primates of Park Avenue is a good title, but, um, I wrote a New York times op-ed called poor little rich women. Um, and I didn't want it to be called that. I, I wanted that also to be called patriarchy on Park Avenue because I wanted to really be very, very blunt about the way in a lot of emergent economies like China or economies like uh, the financial market in New York City, which most of the people I studied were part of, um, that those economies are built on a rigid hierarchy in which men are at the top, earning the money out in the world, and women are at home. And so, you know, that's something for us to think about. And whenever I hear women say they chose to stay at home, I shudder because uh, it's a false choice unless there's very high quality on-site daycare for women at their work. And until men are literally 50% partners in raising babies and children, um, that will remain a false choice. Absolutely. Yeah. That's just so, everything you just said is so huge because I mean, you think about as women, the the systems in which we're operating in, they're not for us, you know? And they, I mean, that's pretty obvious, but at the same time, it's like what you're saying, like, it's easy to make fun of these moms. It's easy to make fun of these situations and it's, it's easy to have a laugh over it, but what happens when we really look deeper? Yeah. Parts of it are really funny. Yeah. Yeah. But then when we look deeper, it's like, holy crap, you know? And you look in and it's just, there's always more to than, than what we're seeing. You know I mean? That's yeah. And people find always. it so hard to believe that rich women could be disempowered relative, not only to their husbands, right. right. But people find it hard to believe that rich women could be disempowered relative to middle-class women with jobs. Right. Like if you're a rich woman and you're part of um, the ideology of intensive motherhood, Plus, you're part of uh, China and the Upper East Side have in common that they are honor shame cultures, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Saving face is extremely mm-hmm. important in 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 mainland China, mm-hmm. and it's extremely important on the Upper East Side of Manhattan to save face. Now, if you are subject to the ideology of intensive motherhood, you've internalized it, and you're afraid to lose face, and your husband isn't treating you well, but he's making the money, you're right. stuck. As opposed to a middle class woman um, who uh, has her own money and has a job and is not uh, as much um, beholden to the ideology of intensive motherhood and is not as much shamed uh, to look for help from relatives um, 
from kin, from friends. Uh, she, so it starts to be very complicated, this idea that we have that these women, uh, these rich women married, these women married to rich men are rich themselves. Um, yeah. And the other real truism, which holds in the United States and mainland China is, um, you know, if you, if you separate, uh, if you take away a woman's ability to work and earn money, right? If she can't bring in resources, if she's resource dependent on a man, you've undercut her power. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. other natural power base of women worldwide is their kin. Mm. And uh, in more traditional uh, societies and, um, you know, previously in the U.S. and in mainland China, women tended to live with their extended kin in their own extended families. Um, you know, and uh, when when men had to come in to a woman's power base, her family, he had to behave. Mm-hmm. But when the practice became women dispersing from their natal groups, from their families upon marriage, right? And when we became neo-local, mm-hmm. uh, which goes with industrialization and uh, agriculture before it, once we became neo-local dwellers, that is, we moved to a new place with our spouse, uh, women were screwed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were far from the care of kin, and they couldn't vote with their feet anymore. I mean, in our evolutionary prehistory and even historically, when women are near their kin or when women have access to their own resources, if they don't like a situation, they can vote with their feet. They can leave. Forget mm-hmm. it. Man, I'm going to my mother's compound. And if you come and try to mess with me, my four brothers will kick your ass. Right. Yeah, right. But when we started living neo-locally, uh, we started uprooting ourselves from our families of origin and our extended families. And now as crazy as they might make us, they are our power base. So these women on the Upper East Side who seemed so powerful to me at first, I realized they didn't have jobs, so they weren't bringing home money, so they didn't have any clout in their families or the society. And second of all, they were many of them were far from their kin. And so if their husbands misbehaved, mistreated them, uh, they did not have the option of just saying, that's it. I'm going to my mom's house. They'll take care of me. Um, So uh, things are not always what they appear. And social science helps us peel back the layers. And for me, it helped me peel back the layers that these women who seemed so powerful and to have so many choices, they might have private planes, they might have Birkin bags, but they didn't have autonomy. Yeah, sounds like many many of them. Many of them. Well, I did call the Upper East Side a glittering, moneyed backwater, Right. you know, because I had never seen such retrograde gender politics. I mean, I had lived downtown, which is a progressive area. I had a lot of gay friends. My friends were artists. They had progressive ideologies. And then I moved to the Upper East Side and I said to myself, well, this is like it's as if Betty Friedan uh, never, never called out that there was a problem without a name. Yeah. It's like, uh, Betty, yeah. yeah, it's like, as my friend, uh, the author, Deb Kopikin says in her book, Lady Parts, you know, she says, it's as if Betty Friedan never howled into the void. <laughs> and said, this is, this is crazy. Um, yeah. So a lot of places on the Upper East Side, uh, among rich women, it's like feminism never happened. Uh, women are ornaments. Yeah. Uh, they're decorative. And like, like strategic, um, socially flexible primates that we are, um, who are facultative and clever and adaptive, uh, these women then adapt strategies around their lowered 
social status relative to men. And one of them is that, that they create dominance hierarchies of their own and they uh, create, uh, you know, powerful, they imbue particular objects uh, with, with power uh, yeah. like the Birkin bag. Yeah. It almost sounds like, it almost sounds like one ornament is trying to use another ornament to make itself looks more fancier. Um, exactly. I mean, that's what the Birkin on, bag on, is. On and that's, tree. that's, yeah, I was very, um, I was very careful in my discussion of the Birkin bag. I, I interviewed uh, the Victorianist and cultural critic, Jeff Nunakawa at Princeton University um, who who has written about um, luxury objects in late capitalism and how they sort of work as um, signifiers of privilege? And he used uh, he he explained that by getting something scarce and rare, mm-hmm. um, a Birkin bag, which at that time was difficult to get. Um, and there was a wait list and they were expensive and they would pretend they didn't have them when they did and so on. But the point that Professor Nunakawa made and that I make in Primates of Park Avenue is that the Birkin bag, exactly uh, to your point that you just said, that women getting this scarce, costly object was a way for them to assert, I myself am a scarce, costly object uh, in an economy where everything is about men valuing women voluntarily, right? Yeah. These women's fates really hung uh, upon uh, their men uh, being honorable and and faithful and valuing them because there was no code that they had to. Yeah. It was completely voluntary. So right. yes, you have to uh, do things like reinscribe your value as scarce and valuable and complicating matters more. The Upper East Side is an ecology where uh, women of reproductive age outnumber men of reproductive age quite uh, dramatically, right? There are more women than men, in other words. Men are the scarce, precious resource. Plus, they're the ones who control access to resources. So the playing field is not level at all. And that's the con- That's the broader context of understanding uh, the social behaviors of mothers on the Upper East Side and of mothers in mainland China. True. So in other words, uh, can I understand it as, because one of the questions that we wanted to ask is that why do we always see this scarcity mindset among people who have the most resources? And do you think that the contributing factor is the unleveling playing field between male and female? Is the contributing factor for women keep objectifying themselves? What a great question. I mean, the, so the larger point is when you're going to be dismissive of women's bad behavior or shallowness um, to dig deeper and to see uh, where these social behaviors are coming from, uh, which is a, a power imbalance. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many contexts in the world where there is not a radical power imbalance between men and women. When we look at the worldwide ethnographic data, um, for example, we see that there are many places in the world where women have much higher rates of meaningful mm-hmm. political participation than women in the United States do. 
There are places in the world where women have much, much higher rates of labor, meaningful labor force participation, big, important jobs uh, than women in the United States do. In fact, on both of those metrics, women in the United States, the United States ranks basically a hundredth on both those metrics out of 200 countries ranked, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Even after um, the midterm elections where women picked up spots, even with a woman being the vice president of the United States, the United States still ranks pathetically when we look at the global data on the fates of women. Um, So that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Um, And and it's even more dramatic because uh, we have such a huge economy. Um, so it's even more shameful that, that we, we rank, uh, so low. So that's always really important to understanding power imbalances between men and women. Look at the data mm-hmm. and the data show us that you cannot assert that the United States is a great place to be a woman. It's right. better to be a woman in Rwanda, in Burundi, in Uganda, uh, in Cuba, right? Places that might be really surprising when you look at the data. Um, So I just wanted to say that that's a really important um, factor in considering the social behaviors of men and women. Um, So I think that your question was, um, is the inequality between men and women the reason that women have these dominance hierarchies? Was that what your question was? Yes, something like that. It just women always think in scarcity mindset where we've... yeah. It depends. I mean, we can't generalize it all. We can never generalize about women do X and men do Y. And I'm uh, one of the points I wanted to say is Mm -hmm. that one of the biggest lessons of anthropology is that, sure, there are sex differences between men and women. Um, Men have more upper body strength and they have more grip strength Um, and they might have better throwing uh, distance throwing uh, facility. Mm -hmm. Other than that worldwide, there aren't a lot of skills in which men outpace women. Mm-hmm. Um, Augustine Fuentes, the anthropologist, uh, crunched the worldwide data and found that, you know, for example, among Kung children, we can't generalize, right? So he found that among Kung children, um, uh, you know, traditional hunter-gatherers, uh, the boys had as fine motor skills that matched the girls' fine motor skills. Uh, He crunched data that showed that there are many uh, contexts in the world where girls uh, play as ebulliently and aggressively as boys. That's not a natural difference between boys and girls any more than fine motor skills is a difference. He found contexts like the United Arab Emirates where girls far outpace boys in performance of science and math. We can't say that that's an essential difference between boys and girls, right? So sexual uh, and social behavior, gendered behaviors are completely tethered to their ecology. Um, So women uh, behave in certain ways depending on their ecological niche, right? So for example, among the Himba of Northern Namibia, uh, where uh, women... Um, sort of live far away from their husbands a lot of the time. Um, women are allowed to have boyfriends and women are allowed to get pregnant by their boyfriends when they're married. To, right? And their husbands look the other way when the women have a baby by their boyfriend. Um, on the other hand, in the United States, a woman who did that might be shot and killed. 
right? And people might even have a lot of sympathy for the husband who did it. They might harbor some sympathy for him and think that it was okay. And there are even places uh, in the world, uh, including the United States, I would say, and places in the Middle East and in South America where there are things called honor killings, right? Where women exercising autonomy uh, are literally killed. And it's just given a pass. What I'm trying to say is female fates, female autonomy, and female power just varies radically uh, from ecology to ecology. The, the the terrible fate of women on the Upper East Side um, is really linked to uh, the rise of plow agriculture 10 to 12,000 years ago and uh, the fact that they don't have jobs. And it's mm-hmm. that simple. A lot of people um, that I interviewed for my work, um, my more recent book, said, you know, the golden rule. And I thought I did. I thought the golden rule was do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right. Uh, but what they meant, they were making a joke. They they said, no, no, the golden rule of marriage. He who has the gold rules. Oh, and my on, goodness. Yeah. And on the Upper East Side, men have the gold and they rule. And the same with a lot of places in mainland China, especially among highly educated um, wealthy people in mainland China. Um, there is a very rigid gender script, right, in which women are supposed to stay home. They're supposed to be responsible for the well-being of their child all by themselves pretty much. And that's their most important job, but they don't have access to resources except through their husband. In any place in the world where a woman is not earning her own money or contributing to the household in some meaningful way, she is disempowered. And right. then comes the lie. Oh, you're so privileged. Oh, right. you made the choice to stay home. Oh, uh, this, uh, this private plane is ours. But, but in these ecologies, women's well-being is so contingent on men's goodwill. Yeah. Mm. And they can, re- they can rescind that at any time. Yeah. Right. Right. I I actually think what is so interesting with this phenomenon is that the lie is so flawless that yeah. sometimes uh, women would tell themselves this is the truth. By yes. not working, I choose a better path because I don't need to deal with bureaucracy. I don't need to deal with competitions outside of my comfort zone. And I have the choice to be the mom who stay at home and focus on my child because I have the resources and it become, although I, as we went through previously, that this is a false, uh, a false like choice. Illusion, that's a real, false choice. That's it's a really a, important concept. Yeah. It's a false choice and illusion, but it almost, it's so flawless that women chose yeah. to do it. And then we brainwash ourselves into thinking that <laughs> this is a more privileged way to be. Oh yeah. We don't want women on the Upper East Side and in mainland China, whose husbands are really rich, yeah. they don't want to hear that their lives are contingent on their husband's goodwill. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and so on their good behavior and on them mm-hmm. performing well. Yeah. Uh, they don't want to hear that. They would much rather hear that they're at the tippy top and that their life is the life. And when sometimes when you tell people, no, your choices are false choices, they might respond with great anger. But yeah. here's what I always say about my work. I'm a social scientist and my job is not to make you feel good. Yes. <laughs> my job yes. is to start conversations based on data about your life. 
uh, that may, may, may not make you feel good at all. Totally. <laughs> totally. I mean, I, my job is really to make people uncomfortable. Right. I mean, it's cause it's factual. I mean, you're, these are real things. It's real numbers. It's not something, it's not a const. it's not like a, you know, a lie that we tell ourselves. It, it, it's, it's hard to face the truth. And I, I wonder too, I mean, when we're talking about the resources that women are fighting for, how they're on the front lines of these battles that they're yeah. fighting within the constructs, you know, for different resources, for Birkenbegs, for education, for Red, all these different yeah, for school slots. <laughs> right. But I want to ask you too, in your research and from your perspective, do you think that the men are fighting for resources in a different way or do they have an entirely different battle to fight? Are th- is, what is it like from the men's perspective in all of this? So uh, this is such a good question and it leads me to another thing about Primates of Park Avenue and doing my field work there that shocked me. Uh, when I lived downtown, I would host dinner parties and go to dinner parties. Obviously, this is before the pandemic. And um, men and women would sit together and gay people and straight people would sit together and um, uh, have conversations. And when I moved to the Upper East Side, one of the first things I noticed was sex segregation. The world of women and the world of men are far, far apart. And I basically said that that I felt like my world on the Upper East Side was just a giant zanana, right? Which is a, a place in some cultures uh, where it's a gendered space for women only and men are not allowed to go in there. Wow. Um, and I felt like uh, big parts of swaths of the Upper East Side were a zanana. So I would go to dinner parties on the Upper East Side and I went to more than one dinner party where men and women literally sat in different rooms. Wow. Now, meanwhile, just a couple of miles away in Midtown or downtown, there were normal dinner parties where men and women sat together, but the Upper East Side has a very rigid, uh, gendered division of labor and a very rigid code about gendered behaviors and gendered differences. Um, and, and I saw that when I went to dinner parties and women and men sat apart from each other. I saw it when I went to children's birthday parties and men would stand on one side of the room and women would stand on the other side of the room. Yeah. And it would be considered scandalous um, if I crossed over to talk to a dad. Um, wow. I saw it mm-hmm, when I applied to summer camp for my child, who at that time was four years old. And... Um, he had a lot of little friends who were girls at his nursery school and he wanted to go to this particular summer camp. So I called the summer camp and I just said, I just want to make sure um, that my son will be able to see during the day, like he'll be spending time or can, can he be in the same group as say, I'm going to just make up names as Chloe and Susie. Mm -hmm. And there was this pause and she said, well, he might see them at lunch. Mm, No, probably not. We keep the girls and boys separate at lunch. And I said, I'm sorry. It's a, it's a co-ed camp, right? And she was like, yeah, but, uh, we just, we keep them separate starting at age four, three or four. And I said, uh, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And I said, but it's a co-ed camp. She said, yeah. And I said, why do you keep them separate starting at age three or four? And she said, oh, you know, their interests are just so different. They are not. 
their interests are not different at all at that age. But what that camp was doing was it was doing the cultural work of asserting a distinction between genders and setting up a gendered, um, uh, sorry, division of labor. And, and it was, I mean, it was profiling boys as one way and girls as another way. And I, I said to the woman, I'm an anthropologist. I have looked at the worldwide data on gender and these children do not have really different interests at age three or four. But what they were doing is they were teaching the children, you're so different from each other. We have to keep you separately. And then you can bet your ass that they were giving girls traditional girly things to do, like beating and teaching the boys, you know, uh, Tai Chi. No, sorry, Kung Fu. Right. I'm just making up that one thing was very physical and one thing was about fine motor. And then they're going to say, oh, boys and girls are just naturally different. They're not. You're teaching them to be different. Right. And so I saw those differences happening with kids. And then I saw them happening with adults at dinner parties. And I had never really in my career uh, as an anthropologist studying contemporary American culture, I had never been in a culture uh, where there was such a rigid uh, division of the genders, where there was so much sex segregation. To make a long story short, I don't know what the world of men was because I was kept out of it. Mm-hmm. And if I ever tried to go into it, uh, the men acted like I was insane and the women mm-hmm. acted like I was a whore, right? Mm-hmm. right? So there was a very stringent ideology continually asserting the different that men and women had to be and should be in wholly different worlds. What is that protecting in, in this world? Like it, it, cause it seems like it's a, it's very, very, very important from like the age of three to make sure that that is clear and prevalent. So what is it about that culture that it's protecting? I mean, what, I don't look, know. If you look at the worldwide ethnographic data, what you will see that is wherever there is sex segregation and it's a stratified society, women will hold a lower social position, right? Right. So sex segregation on the Upper East Side serves to reassert that it is the natural privilege of men. And that is if it's the essence somehow of men to be out in the world, making the laws, making the world out there active. And it's the essence of women to stay home with children, at least until the children go to school full time. Uh, But it is a it is a sinister strategy, because as we know from emerging data in the United States, it's very hard for women to get back into the professional game once they have stepped out, right? And a lot of women that I studied are now trying, their their kids are older now, um, and they're trying to get back into the workforce. And um, even before COVID, that was a very hard uphill climb for a woman who had stepped out of the workforce for several years, if not 10 12, 13 years to raise her kids. Trying to get back in was very tricky before COVID. And now it's trickier than ever before. So just remember the worldwide ethnographic data teach us that wherever there is sex segregation and stratification, women will have a lower social status. And the Upper East Side is no exception. 
And God forbid women have any power because it would probably actually make the world a lot better. So women have uh, established their own world where, you know, pre-pandemic, they did have some significant power, right? And one way to read it is, um, uh, you know, they, they, for example, had charities and they hosted galas and uh, there were dominance hierarchies there. There were social di- dominance hierarchies between moms. And so, you know, they created their own world uh, and it did have uh, a ladder and, and there mm-hmm. was there was stratification there as well. But, you know, patriarchy only benefits the two or three men at the very top. Whenever I hear men saying that feminism is bunk, right? I say to them, I don't know why you're defending patriarchy. You're not doing well. Mm-hmm. Right. Jeff Bezos is doing well, right? And um, like maybe three other men, maybe Elon <laughs> Musk, and maybe three other men in the United States are benefiting from patriarchy. You would have, so, I say to these guys, you would have so much more. If right. Patriarchy only benefits the men at the very, 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 very top. Now it's complicated because on the Upper East Side, these men were at the very, 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 very top. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so you're right there. Yeah. So yeah. it was uh, one of the most unusual environments, ecologies, mm-hmm. uh, in which I've ever found myself. And I, I often said that it was like a time capsule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I to totally weird post World War II moment that only la- that is a blink that's the blink of an eye in evolutionary terms, but people want to naturalize it and say, "Oh yeah, it's always been this way. Mm-hmm. Men were always like going off, and women were always in the cave with the baby." No way. That's the mm-hmm. blink of an eye. That was never the case. We evolved as cooperative breeders. Our evolutionary prehistory is that we were almost radically egalitarian for almost all of our evolutionary prehistory. And uh, women had access to their kin. Women had important political voices as long as we were hunting and gathering and women were providing their bands with most of the calories, up to 80% of the calories. uh, Sometimes we know from studying contemporary hunter gatherers who are sort of like almost like a time capsule to help us study how we lived in the Pleistocene. This weird thing of women being dependent on men, that's a total aberration in the long human calendar. Um, of equality. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the the soup we were cooked in. We were cooked in the soup uh, of um, really radical egalitarianism. And it shifted 10,000 years ago with plow agriculture. And then we only lived in these weird nuclear family units, really starting after World War II in the United States. And now people want to say, oh, the nuclear family's in crisis. What are you talking about? The nuclear family is just a weird aberration that we fetishized that happened, you know, starting in about 1948. The GI Bill helped fund the nuclear family. It was never going to be tenable for a long time. But on the Upper East Side, they're gunning for it. They are trying their very best. And so it's it's a last, the nuclear family is a last gasp, untenable family formation. We didn't evolve to be a nuclear families and our future is not nuclear families. So the women in China, in mainland China and the United States who have been living the relative nightmare of living in a nuclear family far from their kin, um, 
and where they, they feel good and happy only if they're lucky enough to have really good elective kin, really great women around them who back them up and a nice husband who at his whim can just change it. Um, that the nuclear family makes women suffer. Nuclear families are bad for women. Nuclear families are bad for people. We evolved to live in rangy bands and have support from many people. Uh, women evolved to be important, con- make con- important contributions to the bands or the group's well-being. Uh, so this whole way that we've been living that people want to say, oh, yeah, it's ever thus. This is just the way men are. Men just need to be out in the world. And, and oh, this is just the way women are. It's just natural. It's not. It's not natural at all. It's new and it's an historical aberration and it's untenable. It cannot, the the nuclear family cannot last much longer and it is torture. It is a, the nuclear family is a relatively poor developmental setting for children and adults alike. Mm. You know, um, and we talk. ask, like, oh, why do women feel sad? Why do they have postpartum depression? Right. Why do women who stay home with their kids, why are they depressed? And we know they're more depressed and anxious. Right. Um, completely. Yeah. So it's it's that we have taken away their ability to make important contributions um, and have power and a voice. If you are bringing home the bacon, then you have power and a voice. I, I yeah. tell the story that going to dinner parties on the uh, when when my first child was very young and people would say, what do you do? And I would say, well, I'm an anthropologist. I used to work in advertising and market research, but now I'm a full-time mom and they would just turn away from me. Right. Um, you mothers, we, we fetishize mothers and we say they're so great and it's the hardest job in the world, but we could not care less about them and we denigrate them and they're on the bottom rungs. We, we just build them up when we feel like it, like on Mother's Day, right? But really, we degrade motherhood and mothers uh, just as we fetishize them. We wouldn't need a holiday like Mother's Day if mothers uh, were running the country, and running yes. all the Fortune 500 companies, and um, we're president of the United States, generation after generation after generation. We wouldn't need a Mother's Day, right? We wouldn't need to fake build up mothers and motherhood, um, and act like uh, you know, uh, and give women that consolation prize if they had real power. Right. By the way, mother. By the way, Mother's Day is a really nice thing. <laughs> but I'm an anthropologist. I have to wreck everything for everybody all the time. <laughs> hey, keeps everything in lens, you know. <laughs> look at the culture. I have to look at the cultural logic and the yeah. evolutionary prehistory behind something like Mother's yeah. Day. Yes. And if absolutely. we worship, if we worshipped a mother goddess, we wouldn't need a goddamn Mother's Day. <laughs> Mother's I Day is a sh- Mother's Day is a, is a shitty consolation prize uh, <laughs> for women bearing the brunt of yeah. patriarchy. Yeah, it's like here's your gold sticker now. Yeah, but go. still, but still, send me some nice flowers and give me breakfast in bed. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> absolutely. Oh my goodness. <laughs> You know, you spoke a lot. I want to transition into a little bit of your experience because you spoke a lot about the power of the kin. And it seems like, you know, when you're in a situation like on the Upper East Side, it seems like there's almost a situational kin that you're kind of having to force yourself into Mm -hmm. and be there. But you also talked about in your book, the moment you, you share so vulnerably your experience losing a child, Mm. um, 
and how that brought you closer to the woman that alienated you previously due to your Mm -hmm. socioeconomic status. Mm. Why do you think, is it the power of the kin? Is it the, is it the underlying power of sisterhood that brought you together in that moment? Can you take us there and explain why that happened? Like why they rallied around you after they alienated you for so long? Sure. Yeah, sure. One of the things that I write about in Primates of Park Avenue is the evolutionary origins of childhood. And childhood as a life stage really wasn't inserted into the human calendar until about a million years ago. I mean, there are non-human, sorry, there are non-human primate species where um, offspring go from sort of altruistic infants to like relatively competent juveniles pretty quickly. (laughs) But we have this prolonged um, period of childhood. Um, Now, and childhood is a very vulnerable time, right? Worldwide, um, historically, and in our evolutionary prehistory, there have been pretty high rates of of child mortality. Relatively speaking, now it's a relatively safe bet now to be a mother in the industrialized West or in mainland China, uh, where where women have access to good medical care and enlightened uh, thinking and education and resources. Right, China's a lot like the United States in which you can buy yourself safety. Right, there's not a safety net like there is in France um, right. or in Scandinavia, but you can buy yourself safety but only a few people can do that. So that's an important point, an important context. Uh, So in the United States, um, a black woman is, depending on the statistics that you look at, anywhere from four to 12 times more likely to die in childbirth uh, than a white woman. And black babies are... um, uh, in some instances, almost exponentially um, uh, more vulnerable than white babies. We see very high rates of infant mortality among black babies. So I just uh, wanted to say that we have a real crisis in the United States, and I hope that people in China know about it. A lot of times we fetishize the United States as it's such a wonderful place to be and it's such a wonderful place to live. We have a lot of problems with with income inequality and and disparities in healthcare and disparities in living or dying um, because of race and economics. So I just wanted to say that first of all. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think now it's 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 so much. Um, I think the previous presidents. I, I'm just gonna jump in real quick. Yeah, I think now please. people with, you know, uh, not only the president or like the information exchange. I think people no longer try to fetishize. Um, either country and i yeah. think that people in china are definitely seeing that and it's it's not america that's it's not that beautiful country that we envision like there's no place like that yeah it's a complicated it's a complicated place and with a lot of income inequality so yeah pretty rare for somebody like me highly educated in a higher income bracket although not nothing like the income bracket of many of the women that I was studying, but, you know, it was relatively rare, um, to lose a pregnancy just into your sixth month of pregnancy. Um, and it was really heartbreaking because, um, you know, pregnancy to me, I'm very pro-choice. I think women, I'm very, I'm all about reproductive justice and women having, 
access uh, to technologies and medical treatments to decide whether and when to have a baby and to be able to make that decision themselves without anybody else's interference. Um, so, but I, when I was pregnant, I felt that that was my baby. And, um, you know, I was uh, into my sixth month of pregnancy. It was my third pregnancy. I was like out to here. (laughs) I'm tiny and it was my third pregnancy. So I looked even more pregnant than I was going into my sixth month. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, given all my, you know, relative privilege, um, it was a surprise to lose that pregnancy and um, lose that baby and extremely painful And, um, it was a big trauma, a big trauma. And it was almost like a dirty secret too, you know, but it couldn't be a secret because I had been, I had looked, I had looked more like I was probably in my seventh or eighth month of pregnancy, because like I said, I was tiny and it was my third pregnancy. So I started showing very early. So everybody knew my doorman knew the bus driver knew who I, you know, I took the bus most days to drop my son off at school, my older son, uh, depending on the drop-off schedule that we had that day. I just, you know, people where I got coffee, the other doorman on my street who would see me uh, walking by every day, of course, all my friends, um, all my friends and neighbors. And so, uh, and, and of course, um, the moms. And so when I lost the baby, I just completely was surrounded by a network of people who knew, and they really were not sure how to react. Um, And I didn't really tell a lot of people because people around me knew, but then I started telling some of the moms at the, at my kids' nursery schools and at the nursery school where my sons both wound up going to nursery school. And as soon as I told one woman, um, she invited me to her country house for the weekend. Wow. We, we had been, our kids had been friendly, but it was just this, opening of the door. And then when I was there, she told me all about her um, issues with IVF and how hard it had been for her to be pregnant. And I believe she shared that she had had miscarriages. I, I'm very um, clear with myself and other people when I talk about it, that I had a stillbirth. Mm. That matters to me um, to mark in my discussions with people about it. And and when I think about it, it matters to me to mark the amount of time that I had been pregnant. Um, but still, you know, she was, as she was saying to me, yeah, I had a miscarriage and I really respect how painful that uh, experience is as well. And then I started looking at the data and how common miscarriage was. I mean, stillbirth is more unusual, especially in the industrialized West, but still um, miscarriage is uh, remarkably common. I mean, and then if we uh, factor in sort of what we might call spontaneous miscarriage in, in earliest pregnancy, you know, just right after implantation, or some people believe that in our species, you know, the rate of miscarriage might be as high as 50%. So anyway, women just started, this mom opened up to me, another mom from my kid's school said, let's go for a walk in the park. And she told me how she almost died um, during a stillbirth at the same, she was exactly as far along as I was. Wow. And women just wanted to talk to me about it. They wanted to comfort me. 
and they wanted to be comforted. They knew that I had just gone through it and that they could talk to me about it. So it was a really, um, yeah, it was very heartening. And it was, it was a very nice thing to see that some of the women who had seemed so invulnerable and, um, sort of like Teflon, you know, knowing that they had been through something like this and that they opened up to me about it, that they expressed sympathy, whether it was through a text or let's go for a walk or come to our house for the weekend or sending their nanny over or having my older, my, my kids over for a sleepover so that I could just cry all day, you know, or cry all night. So yeah, that was, um, that was a wonderful thing. I mean, I don't want to, um, you know, be a Pollyanna about it, but it showed me that cooperation and altruism, uh, which are such an important part um, of our evolutionary prehistory. I mean, I believe having uh, read up on it, I believe that um, altruism and cooperation were probably more important in our evolutionary prehistory than, than violence and conflict. I mean, we had both things, but we're here because we're so good at altruism and cooperation. And it was just amazing to see that unfold mm-hmm. in real time. And I felt I, it was just such a blessing to be the beneficiary of that. And I always had one eye on it as an anthropologist, but just one eye on it as like a thinking, feeling mother who really, I really needed consolation and, and these women gave it to me. Yeah. Do you think that maybe we're you wired gave it for that? Do you think you maybe gave it to them too? That because they probably never got it, maybe when it happened to them. So maybe that's part of it too, as you were I mean, able to give. That's interesting. I mean, I do think that those forms of comforting and expressing altruism are really mutually beneficial, right? Like we know that when we reach out to somebody who's vulnerable um, and we connect with them, it's sort of crimes, um, all these, we we are primed for connection, right? And when we do it, there's sort of this flood of neurotransmitters and hormones. It's like a cocktail going through our body physically, and it feels good emotionally too. And I think that when we comfort other people, we're hewing really closely um, to our evolutionary script about being pro-social and affiliative and caring. And I think that that is, feels profoundly good to the person doing it and the person receiving it. And so that is kind of a balm, you know, in a rigidly stratified, hierarchized ecology to yeah. see kindness, to see affiliative and pro-social behavior, to see mothers remembering in a deep way the evolutionary legacy of cooperative breeding in which it's not just a bumper sticker. It takes a village and your child is my child. Mm -hmm. So that was, yeah, yeah, that was a wonderful counterpoint to some of the more competitive, almost violent behaviors. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I was trying to say, because at the end of the day, based on your, what you just shared and the experience that you wrote in the book, love giving and altruism are so simple. There are simple behaviors that you can do. And it's a couple words. It's an invitation to the country house. It's a walk. It's a cup of coffee. These simple Mm -hmm. behaviors brought the biggest um, 
solitude and also comfort to the people, to other fellow women who are suffering. Yeah. Yet, on the other hand, how we started off with this conversation, this complicated hierarchy, this complicated fight, these type of um, behaviors where we hurt each other so um, with intricacy and and it's 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 so complicated and sometimes I wonder why is that I mean yes hierarchy it's a byproduct of patriarchy and I think patriarchy definitely complicates how women interact with each other and that's part of the reason why based on all of our conversation I kind of realized that women are mean to each other because we just try to get what we could in this in this situation where men dominate all the resources but Mm. eventually when we are just with each other, the kindness is the easiest and also the most comforting thing we can do to each other. You know, I think, I think that's so well said. I like how you said that there's like, there's an intricacy to the sadism that women inflict on one another. I mean, I see it in many different ecological niches. I see women journalists treating other women writers horribly. Um, I see, I saw women on the free side treat other women horribly. Um, I see it in many different ecological niches, but you know, maybe I'm a goody two shoes, but I'm, like I said, I'm, throwing my hat in with the evolutionary biologists who have argued to me very persuasively um, that we, there is a deep groove inside of us. Altruism uh, was a highly adaptive behavior in the software for altruism, for cooperation, for cooperative breeding, Mm -hmm. for caring for your child because we're connected and it's, it's not my genetic offspring, but I have, it is adaptive for me to care about your little one, right? Right. It's adaptive for me to have a pretty low threshold for eliciting caretaking behaviors because in our evolutionary prehistory, I was taking care of your kid and you were taking Mm -hmm. care of mine. So it is my belief that altruism pro-social behavior, connection, caring. That's the deepest groove inside of us. Now you can move us to a rigidly stratified, hierarchized ecology where we're scratching each other's eyes out, but the software is still in there. So um, I, I'm, I guess I'm an optimist in that way. Um, and so beautifully um, put. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I would really urge people um, on Mother's Day and, and beyond to read a book by one of my most important mentors and the person whose work has inspired me so much. Her name is Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy. And she wrote two books that I think that your listeners, if they liked Primates of Park Avenue or if they're interested in the ideas that we're talking about, um, they might be interested in her work. Um, she wrote one book called Mother Nature, um, and she wrote another book called Mothers and Others. And her books are about the evolutionary origins of maternal behavior. And she looks at the, the maternal child dyad, the mother-child dyad, and she says we can unlock the whole story of human evolutionary prehistory by understanding these forms of sympathy and caregiving and caring uh, that 
prevailed between moms and babies. So, and it's very unsentimental and it's very mind blowing. And she's, uh, she's an evolutionary biologist and primatologist who made some extremely important contributions uh, to contemporary thinking about evolution. You know, since Darwin, there have been maybe three really important contributors to evolutionary theory. Um, Robert Tribbers, Bill Hamilton, and Sarah Hurdy. So I just really urge people, if they're listening on Mother's Day and wondering, you know, they're interested in the anthropology of motherhood and childhood, you might really like the work of Sarah Blaffer Hurdy. I love that. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's, you know, one of the things I think as shared as women, there are experiences that only we can share that men cannot share. Mm -hmm. Like what we discussed earlier, um, with losing a child and, and just the motherhood itself, we are the only people, the only human beings that can experience that. And I know that Amy believes this too, but we, I believe, and, and I know Amy believes these shared experiences between women are powerful enough to bring us across cultures. It's why Amy and I are sitting here in this Zoom call together and we have a podcast because when we met, the night that we met, it could have gone one of two. It it went one of two ways. And luckily it went the way that it did, but very easily that situation could have changed where and Amy even shared with me, she had this narrative in her head, like, oh my gosh, like why is there a white girl at this table right now? Like with this Chinese man, like what is, you know, like Mm. she could have just not talked to me. She could have let that whole, you know, mindset from the (sighs) construct, like drive the wedge in between us. And meanwhile, I'm sitting on the other side of the table. Like I'm just scared shitless. I don't know what's going on exactly. Like I'm meeting my, my then boyfriend's parents for the first time. And I didn't know what I was doing. I have a huge language barrier. Um, but Amy, instead of leaning into that voice from the construct in her head, she leaned the other way and she thought about maybe what, what it would feel like for, or she probably, you know, and I don't want to speak for you, Amy, but I feel like Amy went to her own experiences of being the fish out of water in a different culture. Um, and empathy. Yeah. Yeah. That empathy. Exactly. And even though that's, that's an experience that any gender can have that I feel like that goes back to the point though, that these shared experiences between women, I feel like are powerful enough to bring us together across cultures, like I was saying, but I also want to ask you, how do you think women can lead with a sense of camaraderie with one another without relying on our shared experiences and tragedies specific to us as women? Like, is there, how do we step outside of the construct and exist with each other in complete harmony that does not have any of this divisiveness or this, um, these wedges in between us mm. due to the, I mean, the construct yeah. of the patriarchy, basically. Yeah. Um, we said, Oh, wow. Well, that's a really big question, but it's kind of the heart of the matter, right? How do women, how can we be powerful and, and, and work together? And, you know, Sarah Hurdy has studied this issue, actually speaking of her. And, you know, one of the things she says is, um, women will not naturally lift up other women because in some instances it's dangerous for them. Right. 
and, and in some instances, women uh, will see that their best move is to align themselves with with male power, right? So, for example, mm-hmm. those white women who voted for Donald Trump, right? They right. were they were running the social calculus. They were making a cynical choice. Well, I'm the kind of woman that he'll protect, and he's annihilated Hillary Clinton, and I might be annihilated. So, you know, or I'm or just like this just feels good, right? This just I have the privilege to be on the side of um, of power. Um, and I don't care that he's saying horrible things about women. I'm the kind of woman that he'll protect, right? White women right. sort of had that that privilege. Um, 55% of them, uh, right, that went up from 52% in the 2016 election. So let's not uh, get all namby-pamby about women being nice to other women naturally. Because yeah. we see that in some ecologies, uh, women judge that it's in their best interest to be really horrible to other women um, because – Everything else is just too dangerous. Now, for those Trump women, it's not that the alternatives were dangerous, but there are some places like, for example, in Cameroon, um, there are some places where women kill uh, men have several wives and women uh, kill the children of the other wives. Right. A wife Mm -hmm. might kill her husband's other wife's children, poison, poison the children. Um, And um, so depending on the ecology, women's behavior, women's social behavior toward other women is going to be flexible and strategic. And it's going to range from killing another woman to reaching out to her and lifting her up. But I would say that there are important lessons um, from primatology for us, right? Because primates are our closest non-human relatives. Um, and we're not monkeys, but we didn't it wasn't too long ago, evolutionarily speaking, that we parted ways with chimps and bonobos. Right. And I think bonobos uh, have a very special lesson to teach women. Um, and if you'll indulge me, I'll just get into it in a little bit of a specific detail. But please do. Uh, bonobos in uh, only live in DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, which was formerly Zaire and a very war torn. Um, environment, uh, very dangerous ecology for humans, um, for the people who live there. Uh, it was too dangerous for primatologists to go and study there. So while people who lived in what is now called DRC knew about bonobos, primatologists didn't know about them until relatively recently. And it's very hard to study them in C2 uh, because, you know, to the point again about DRC and political instability there now and when it was Zaire. So we really didn't know very much about bonobos and we drew all our lessons about why humans are the way they are from chimps and just one group of chimps basically uh, at Gombe, right? At Jane Goodall's site in Gombe, Tanzania. And chimps can be really violent and chimps are a male dominant species and male chimps commit infanticide against female chimps. And there is nothing scarier or more, there's nobody lower on the totem pole uh, than a female chimp who transfers uh, into a new troop. Other female chimps might kill her. Um, Males might sexually assault and kill her. Um, Chimps are a male dominant species uh, with all the tragedies that that and dangers that that implies for female chimps. Bonobos, extremely closely related to chimps and our other closest relatives. And some people who look at Uh, studies of muscle tissue of bonobos argue that we are more closely related to bonobos than chimps. But either way, what we know is that we are 
certainly equally um, related uh, to bonobos as we are chimps, equally close, um, closely related to bonobos as we are to chimps. Bonobos. The primatologist Amy Parrish started to study them. Mm. And she noticed that the females always ate first. Hmm. And she noticed that some of the females almost had like this Shrek-like appearance. And everybody was lining up to groom them. The males weren't getting groomed. The females were getting groomed all the time. Wow. And then she started noticing female bonobos lashing out at males. A male would bother a female bonobo and she would just like slap him in the face, right? Or scratch him or charge him, go after him. And the male would... Stand back. Now that's weird because males inherit their rank from their moms and female bonobos transfer into a troop from their natal group at sexual maturity, just like chimps. When the chimp females transfer into the group, they're getting their asses kicked and having their babies killed, right? Right. But when female bonobos transfer in, they they should be super vulnerable. Amy's like, let me look at the veterinary records. And we have good evidence that bonobos under human care behave if the enclosures are good and the care is good, or behaving the way they would in the wild. So she said, let me look at these veterinary records. It's so weird that females eat first, that females get groomed the most. And the females are charging the males. What's going on? She looks at the veterinary records. Something like 98%, I could be off by a percentage point or two, but an extraordinary number of injuries, including near lethal injuries inflicted upon male bonobos by female bonobos. Bingo. Amy Parrish blew up primatology because she said the evidence is clear. The data are clear. Bonobos, uh, as closely related to us as chimps at least, are a female dominant species. Wow. That's part of the evolutionary backstory of humanity that we don't tell, that we evolved not just from a male dominant species, chimps, uh, where males are violent toward females. We also equally evolved uh, from a female dominant species. Why? Why can female bonobos do this? How did this happen? Primatologists really wanted to know after Amy said that they're a female a dominant species, people wanted to know why. Why? The females are the females should be the low gals on the totem pole. They're transferring from their natal group. They're so vulnerable. And the males are so much bigger. How is this happening? That the females are like literally kicking the males' asses. So uh and even uh, primatologists, including Amy Parrish, have observed uh female bonobos sexually coercing males. Sometimes just like bugging a male so much, um, bugging and bugging and bugging him. And like the males have uh, erections a lot of the time from anxiety because uh, they're lower ranking. So they're anxious. So they always have erections and the females will just copulate them. And uh, primatologists, including Amy Parrish, have observed that sometimes the males appear less than happy about this. Right. So there may even be sexual coercion of males by females among bonobos. Uh, We have to look into that more. But here's the point. How? How did this happen? How did it get this way? It turns out that when a female bonobo transfers into the bonobo troop, the first thing she does is she starts having sex with the other bonobos, right? Bonobos 
Bonobos resolve tension by sex. <laughs> Chimps, if you give them a whole cache of bananas, they're going to start beating each other up. Right. Right. Bonobos, if you give them a whole cache of bananas, they're all going to have sex first and then they're going to um, have uh, the bananas. That's the way they resolve tension. So the female goes in and she starts having sex with all the other bonobos, but primatologists started to no- notice something. The females were much more likely to choose to have sex with other females than with other males, than with males. Mm. And it turns out that they have these forward facing, exposed, richly innervated uh, clitorides. That's the plural of clitoris. And that when the females rub their clitorides together, it creates a lot more sexual pleasure for them uh, than intercourse with a male does. So the female bonobo goes into the nutrient. She starts having sex with the other bonobos to dispel tension, but she's much more likely to have sex with the other female bonobos just because it feels better. And like this is bonobos learn that, right? Female bonobos have orgasms and they've learned that uh, rubbing against another female, they'll have an orgasm more often than they will the male. And they're not stupid. So they're having sex with the females. What is the outcome of this? The females, total strangers to each other form intense social bonds, right? Wow. They're having orgasms together. They like each other. There's all this oxytocin and dopamine and norepinephrine, and they form all these neurotransmitters, right? All these hormones flowing that create connection and bonding. And then these females are bonded and then they create together because they have social bonds. They create a coalition. And if a male bonobo tried to kill a female bonobo's offspring. God help him. <laughs> they know better. They might die. There are veterinary records that female bonobos have torn um, penises, uh, the penis off at least one male bonobo. It was reattached and he was able to have erections and reproduce afterwards. Everybody's always really concerned about that. <laughs> um, so this is a long roundabout way of saying, that the evolutionary origins of human social interactions and, and our gender script, we are as much evolved from a sort of freewheeling, uh, female dominant lesbian hookup culture <laughs> as we are from a culture of violent lunatic males killing <laughs> killing babies. Okay. So this is part of the story of the evolutionary origins of human social behavior and the relationships between men and women that we haven't paid enough attention to. And Amy Parrish likes to say, look, it's not like all women are like, if women all started having sex with each other, uh, we would change the world. But she said, you know, the bonobo sisterhood is a very powerful model of how if women truly bond with each other, if they're truly able to, uh, you know, our, our very close relatives show us that it is possible for, for females who are, who are smaller and should be more vulnerable that through coalition building, um, excuse me, they can become very powerful and become dominant. So, um, that's just a little roundabout bit of primatology that I'm putting in there. Uh, for us to kind of flesh out the evolutionary origins of sisterhood, the yeah, bonobo sisterhood. Just, oh, 
Wow. I, I love that because it's so interesting that like a matriarchy between bonobos seems so less violent in comparison to a male patriarchy formed by chimps. But if we just look at the human beings back at it again, we see that women are acting like it's thinking in scarcity. It's like, this is my resources. I don't, I don't yeah. want you to touch it at all. Yeah. And a lot of people think that the reason like Amy Parrish talks about how bonobos are sort of more Pacific, they're sort of like thought of as like the hippie swinger primates. (laughs) And like, I always say like, think about it as like bonobos are Californians and chimps are New Yorkers, like Uh. chimps, like bonobos can eat anything and they can digest anything. Right. And so for them, there's just tons of food. They can eat just about anything and there's tons of food everywhere and they're fine. And there's not a lot of scarcity. Mm -hmm. Chimps are like New Yorkers. There are like only seven school spots for 25 (laughs) kids. (laughs) There's not enough food. The apartments are really expensive. They're totally stressed out. Um, So so as silly as it sounds and in my book on true, um, which is also, um, uh, translated into uh, both simple and complex Mandarin. Uh, mm-hmm. In my book on true, I talk that. a lot about bonobos uh, and chimps and uh, the bonobo sisterhood, as Dr. Amy Parrish describes it, and and how uh, lessons uh, for human women from the bonobo sisterhood. So, um, mm. you know, if people want to uh, yes. read that and untrue, they can, and they can also look at the work of Dr. Amy Parrish, who's the world's leading expert on bonobos. For sure. Yeah, I will definitely. Definitely going to read that. Definitely going to read that and then advertise it. And I guess <laughs> we're talking about your book. I guess my last question would be what is next for your creative journey now that we know you're no longer, you, you're in California, right? And what's next for, for you? Um, you know, I this is a good opportunity to just talk about the pandemic a little bit for maybe yeah. just a minute through the lens of yes. anthropology. You know, we talked a lot about how we evolved um, these, we have this deep evolved group for being pro-social and affiliative and cooperative. And I think the pandemic has really challenged us in that way. So um, during the pandemic, I just was... Uh, I mean, I'm lucky, you know, I could be gentle on myself. I could, you know, uh, there are times when I can step away from my work, luckily, because my husband works and there are times, uh, sorry, uh, where he can support me. Um, It can't be a habit, but it can happen sometimes. And so I was really fortunate that during during the pandemic, I could step away from my work a little. Um, I wrote a couple of op-eds and then I just uh, realized this is really a time to focus on my family, um, seeing my friends in the ways that I can. Um, FaceTiming with people. And I'm mentioning all this because, you know, through the lens of anthropology, isolation uh, really starts kickstarting mechanisms that make us think we're dying, right? Mm-hmm. We evolved uh, in a setting where we had predators. There were really scary predators all around us, and, but we didn't, we didn't have claws. Uh, we didn't have like big long fangs to defend ourselves, but we had each other, right? We had right. coalitions and we had each other to keep each other warm, to keep each other taken care of. And so there's a reason why historically uh, banishing someone was a punishment worse than death, right? If you really wanted to make somebody miserable, you would banish them. 
if you really, really want to punish a prisoner, you put them in solitary. Right. And what happens to us, given that we evolved as cooperative breeders and we needed each other to stay alive, literally, is that when we are isolated, we feel like we're dying. Right. We think we're dying. And because in our evolutionary prehistory, being alone meant death. You would die. You would right. die if you were banished from the group. You would die if you were away from your people. Uh, right. So I've been really gentle on myself, understanding that my body thinks I'm dying. Uh, mm. And all of us, uh, when we were isolated, that's what our minds and bodies were telling us is that um, this is a really dangerous situation. Social isolation is extremely dangerous for human beings. Um, plus, you know, many of us have been like grieving really hard. Um, so I'm just going to say that maybe I could be an example to people that I really lowered my expectations of myself. I mean, I my whole life, I have always pushed myself really hard. You know, I had to go to the best school. I had to get the highest degree. I couldn't just write a book. I had to write an a number one New York Times bestseller. Um, you know, I've always pushed myself harder, harder, harder. And this was a great lesson for me in taking a step back and not pushing myself so hard. And I think that might be a really, um, I hope that would be a message that would be helpful, not just in pandemic times, but in all times for moms who are um, uh, being pressured to be so competitive and to, um, you know, just... I hope they will give themselves permission. This was a really hard year. I'm not focused on, I'm not focused. I'm focused on progress, not perfection. Um, and I'm not, uh, focused on, um, excelling. I'm focused on surviving. So my work, um, took a back burner and for anybody else who had to do that, there's no shame in that. You literally thought you were dying and a lot of people did die. And so we have a lot of grieving to do. And um, productivity to me means getting myself out of threat response mode. We've all been in what uh, biologists would call threat response mode for a year. And it's yeah. going to take some doing to get us out. So, but that said, um, I'll be talking about my new projects uh, on Instagram soon. I have a work of fiction that'll be coming out. Uh, soon, I hope, and a work of nonfiction as well. So um, stay tuned. And everything was slowed down because um, we were having a huge, uh, our species was going through a huge crisis. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I hope people will be easy on themselves. For sure. Yes. Yeah, especially stressed out competitive moms. Mm -hmm. Take a minute, yes. take a time, take time. Yeah. We can't just jump back into things being normal again. Nothing's normal. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the disease, the COVID might recede. We might get all the vaccines out. We might right now, God help us to help, help India. Yeah. But after that, you know, it's so funny to me when people say, uh, when, when things are back to normal, um, the benchmark there's not really a benchmark for what you do after millions of people died in a pandemic. So as a social scientist, I'll be really interested um, to see how we move back out into the world and what mothering and motherhood will feel like um, after a huge global tragedy like this. I think, you know, will mothers feel more vulnerable than ever before? Will they, will their social behaviors change? How will they change? I'll be really paying close attention to that. 
Yeah. We might need to come back and chat with you (laughs) during, during that time, because I would love to hear your observations from that standpoint, because we're not, we're not going back to normal. There is no such thing as going back to normal. We're only, there's no going back anywhere. We're, we're moving forward and we're moving forward after being through such a incredibly challenging and difficult situation. So man, that's just, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Wednesday, for talking to us. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Questions. I'm sure that your words and your passion will really inspire so many females who felt burnt out and who didn't know what they did wrong, or they always feel like they're not on the right path to alleviate their pain and stress and to be, to embrace the amazing selves as they are. And, um, yeah, thank you so much again. I hope they will. Thank you for, thank you both for having me on and thanks for your wonderful podcast and, uh, the important work you do. I appreciate it. And thanks for letting me, um, connect with your followers and your listeners. I appreciate that too. For sure. For sure. Thank you. Thank you both. Take care. Take care. You too. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to join in on the conversation. Connect with us on Instagram at spark underscore podcast and Facebook at the spark podcast with Megan Amy or send us an email at hello spark podcast at gmail.com. And wherever you may be listening from, we hope you have the courage to be the spark. 